0: Alright, so the immutability of God and the faithfulness of God. I want to begin by reading Psalm 46. This is the great psalm from which Luther wrote, A mighty fortress is our God. So let's read Psalm 46. I'll read this as we begin. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling. There is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. The nations raged, the kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice, the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has made desolations in the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations, I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our refuge. Let's pray together. Lord God in heaven, you are constant, for you are, as we have seen in this study, you are self-existent, you are self-sufficient, you are eternal, and so there is no shadow of turning or changing in you, and it's on you that we can depend And it's to you now that we turn Uh, today, uh, a day that you have made and declared to be holy and set aside, set apart for your name's sake. Uh, But Lord, you also tell us that you made this day for us. You have made it to be a blessing to us. So Lord, as we gather, let us call the Sabbath day a delight as we should. And even now, as we gather to set our minds on eternal things, things that are far beyond and above us, yet which you reveal to us. We ask, Lord, that uh, you would quiet our hearts, setting aside the, the cares and worries of, of the week, uh, turning our minds to the things of you, uh, that we might enjoy your blessings and the blessings of this, your day. Uh, we depend on your spirit. We ask that you would uh, be at work in all the, the goings on of today as your people gather. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, the reason uh, I wanted to start with that psalm uh, is that it speaks of God as our refuge, as a rock, as so many of the psalms do, as so many scriptures do, uh, and, and what is communicated there is the unshakable, unchanging, and unshifting nature of God. That's what we're going to discuss and talk about with the immutability of God, uh, his, his constancy, uh, and, and relatedly His faithfulness. Um, these are, again, two chapters that I'm taking out of order because they relate to each other. Uh, they they uh, together inform us um, about an aspect of God, an attribute of God, uh, that describes his relationship to all things. Um, that it never changes. Uh, though we see different aspects of it, uh, he never changes. So we've talked about God's immutability quite a bit already. It's been mentioned. We've talked about it as modifying or describing other attributes how it relates to other attributes, but now we're going to explore the idea and the doctrine of God's immutability directly. Um, so what does it mean that God is immutable? The dictionary definition, if you look that up says that the word immutability means uh, something that is not subject to or susceptible to change. So when it comes to God, he is not subject to nor susceptible to any change, whether from outside himself some outside influence or circumstance, or from any shifting of his own mind or his affections. There is no change in God. I want to read uh, Pink's opening paragraph in this chapter, which again, he just puts very, very well. He says this, Immutability is one of the divine perfections which is not sufficiently pondered. It is one of the excellencies of the creator which distinguishes him from from all his creatures god is perpetually the same subject to no change in his being attributes or determinations therefore god is compared to a rock and he cites there deuteronomy 32:4 a rock which remains immovable when the entire ocean surrounding it is continually in a fluctuating state even so through all though all creatures are subject to change god is immutable because God has no beginning and no ending, he can know no change. He is everlastingly the father of lights with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. As James 1.17, one of the great verses of many that declare God's unchanging, immutable character. Pink uses this chapter to go through three different aspects or areas in which we can Uh, consider and profit from considering the immutability of God. Um, First, he talks about God's essence or his being, his nature. Uh, In his essence, he is subject to no change, no mutation. God says of himself in Malachi 3.6, I am the Lord. I change not. Couldn't be more clear. There's many others that describe that, like we talked about uh, God being a rock describing himself as something that is immovable, unshakable, unchangeable. But there he says it explicitly, I am the Lord, I change not. Now, although scripture reveals that God relates to his creation in various ways at various times, we should not conclude, as some falsely do, that therefore God changes. Because he relates in one way at one time, or in a different way at a different time, or if he relates to different creatures differently, some people conclude that that means God changes, but that's not true. Some also say that God is, uh, almost describe him as a different God in the Old and the New Testament because of how he relates to people differently uh, in the Old and New Testaments, how he's described in different ways. Uh, but again, that's not true. And I think it's important here as well to remember that uh, when we're talking about God's attributes, we're talking about all three persons of the Trinity. This is something that has tripped up uh, and been the subject of much controversy. If God is immutable, that means that the Son is immutable. That means that the Holy Spirit is immutable. Uh, This was the subject of the Arian controversy in the early church. If God is immutable and unchangeable, how is it that God was incarnate? How was God born in the person of Jesus Christ? And if, if he was born, he had a beginning. So he cannot be God. Uh, that was the argument of the Arians. Um, but we know and, and uh, we know definitively from Scripture that that's not true. All of the divine attributes are attributed to Christ Himself, and so we know that He is God. Uh, he took to Himself a human nature. His human nature has uh, has is a, of a mutable nature. But his divine nature, that's what we're talking about here, his essence and and being as divine was not. That is eternal and unchanging and immutable. It's from that controversy that we get the Nicene Creed that says um, that the son is of one being and substance with the father. That's the exact idea that we're getting at here. God is immutable in his essence. But there are uh, scriptures that talk about God uh, uh, relating to things differently at different times. And that's not something we need to be concerned about. For instance, when Moses asks at the burning bush what he should call God when he returns to the Israelites in Egypt, God tells him that his name is, I am who I am. That's Exodus 3.14. John Calvin Speaking about this verse in his commentary said that the Hebrew word used there designates the perpetual duration of time. So using the word, uh, the phrase, I am who I am, or uh, I am who I will be what I will be. uh, I think is one way to translate it or one way it has been translated. It's making clear there that God is revealing a divine glory that belongs to himself alone because he alone is eternally self-existent and unchanging. He always is what he is now. He always will be what he has always been. Uh, that's, there's different ways you could say it. But the point is that he is always changing. He is eternal. I'm going to read a couple of quotes. Uh, one from Pink here in his chapter. Again, talking about the essence or being of God being immutable. Immutable. I am the Lord, I change not. That's Malachi 3.6. That is God's own unqualified affirmation. He cannot change for the better, for he is already perfect. And being perfect, he cannot change for the worse. Altogether, unaffected by anything outside himself, improvement or deterioration is impossible. He is perpetually the same. I love the way he puts that. He cannot change for the better because he's already perfect. And because he's perfect, he cannot change for the worse. There's, there's really no better way to put it than that. He is perfect. W- what does it mean that he's perfect? He cannot uh, change for any worse. I also want to read a quote from Bob Inc. on this as well. Herman Bob Inc. in his Reformed Dogmatics says, If God were not immutable, he would not be God. His name is being, and this name is an unalterable name. All that changes ceases to be what it was. But true being belongs to him who does not change. That which truly is remains. That which changes was something and will be and will be something, but is not anything because it is immutable, uh, because it is mutable. But God who is, who is cannot change, for every change would diminish his being. Furthermore, God is as immutable in his knowing, willing, and decreeing as he is in his being. So what Bobik is getting at there is the idea that something if something can change, then it's not truly what it is. It, it, there is no true, uh, definitive, or absolute being in it. Uh, it was something, and is going to be something else. It is, a, 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 cannot be depended on. It's constantly in flux. It's constantly changing, if that's the case. If it can change at all, then it is constantly changing. And so if we're talking about God who is eternal, who is the Alpha and the Omega, then we cannot accept any idea that there is any change in him. So he is immutable in his essence or his being. He is also immutable or unchanging in his attributes. Now, when we looked at the simplicity of God in our first week, uh, the idea that all of God's attributes describe Himself are bound up with and inherent in His essence. He is His attributes. That reminds us that because God is eternal and unchangeable in His essence. He is also therefore eternal and unchangeable in his attributes. So that's why we've used the word immutable to describe the other attributes. Because if God is unchanging, then everything about himself is unchanging. All of his attributes are unchanging. His love never changes. His wrath never changes. His justice, his mercy, all of them uh, will never change, cannot change. Because they are himself. Pink says... The attributes of God can no more change than deity can cease to be. His veracity or truthfulness is immutable for his word is forever settled in heaven, Psalm 119:89. His love is eternal. I have loved thee with an everlasting love, Jeremiah 31:3. And having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end, John 13:1. His mercy ceases not for it is everlasting. Psalm 105. Again, these are all over scripture that uh, God's attributes are everlasting or from everlasting. This idea of eternality or immutability, basically describing the same thing. All of God's attributes are immutable. And third, uh, God is immutable in his counsel. This gets us back to the idea of the eternal decree of God. So in God's decree, all things are eternal. They are from everlasting. Uh, they uh, were He decreed all things from eternity. And if that's true, then nothing in time, if God's decrees and, commi- uh, and what he has decreed is from outside time or in eternity, then nothing in time, in human experience or the universe, can change it. It is eternal. It is immutable. So nothing can cause God's counsel to change. Now, Pink here raises the objection that... Scripture describes God in various places as having some change of mind or change of heart. For instance, in Genesis 6, verse 7, when God sees the wickedness of all mankind on the earth after the fall... The way the New King James puts it is, it says that the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. The the King James says, uh, uses the language, uh, it repented the Lord and it grieved him at his heart. Another place in Exodus 32 after the golden calf incident. And again in Numbers 14, Moses intercedes on behalf of Israel. Numbers 14 is where Uh, The spies went into the promised land, came back, gave a bad report, uh, sowed fear in, in the people, and they refused to go into the promised land at God's command. So in both of those incidents, Exodus 32 and Numbers 14, Moses intercedes on behalf of Israel and appears to persuade God or change his mind so that he relents from destroying the people. So we have those statements and we have the statements that God never changes. That his decrees are eternal. So does scripture contradict itself? Not at all. Pink explains that scripture uses language that accommodates our creaturely weakness. It uses language that our minds can grasp to express a change in God's dealings or a change in his posture towards creatures. Scripture makes mentions of, uh, another way to see this is that Scripture makes mention of God's eyes, His hands, His feet, although it clearly states that God is a spirit. He doesn't have body parts, but Scripture describes body parts. Why is that? God is said to uh, awaken, Psalm seventy-eight sixty-five, and also to rise early. Jeremiah seven thirteen. Though scripture clearly states that he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. That's Psalm 121, 4. Again, it's, a, it's using language uh, that we, uh, I hesitate to say it so that we can relate to it, but that's kind of the idea. We are creatures. We are limited. And so he is expressing himself according to our weakness so that we can understand the change in his dealings, how he reaches in, uh, scripture talks about God stretching out his his hand. Uh, that's talking about his particular conduct and action toward his people. These are ways that help us to understand God's dealings. And so when God's dealings with his people change or his posture towards his people change according to his decrees, not as a result of some change that was unforeseen, but in accordance with or in pursuit of his decree, God is said, for our benefit, to repent or to relent in what he is doing. But that is just the expression or the playing out of God's decree. It's not a change in God's decree. It's important to remember that. Now, in all of this, in in his immutability, the Most High God is completely unlike mankind. I'm going to read another quote from Pink here. God's purpose never alters. One of two things causes a man to change his mind and reverse his plans. Want of foresight to anticipate everything or lack of power to execute them. But as God is both omniscient or all-knowing and omnipotent, all-powerful, there is never any need for him to revise his decrees. No, the counsel of the Lord standeth forever the thoughts of his heart to all generations, Psalm thirty three eleven. Therefore do we read of the immutability of his counsel. That's Hebrews six seventeen. So again, we change because there was something we didn't see coming. There was something we didn't anticipate. We have to update our minds, update our expectations, update our plans. God has no need to update anything because he already knew everything. He knows everything that will be. Or we could change our minds or change our our course of action because, turns out, we weren't powerful enough uh, to execute what we intended, so we have to adjust. That also cannot be said of God. He is completely unlike the creatures. Now, Pink, from this point, goes in to discuss some applications or some takeaways. Um, And this time, what I'm going to do, because the immutability of God and his faithfulness are so closely related. I'm going to go talk about God's faithfulness and then at the end, I'm going to try to do some kind of application or takeaways, uh, some some thoughts we can take away from these ideas all together. Um, I'm kind of do a, a combined application of the two chapters. So we're going to go into chapter 10, the faithfulness of God. And Pink doesn't describe it this way, but I think... It's right to consider God's faithfulness as an expression of his immutability. So, his immutability is absolute. It is in himself. He never changes. What does that mean for how he relates to us? It means that he is faithful in all things. He is faithful to everything that he intends, he is faithful to himself. And so, in all his dealings with his people, he is faithful. So because he is immutable in his being, his attributes and his counsel, he is faithful to his word. Now, again, as a contrast, Pink describes our experience as creatures and in particular fallen creatures and how this is so um, so different from us. This is how he opens the chapter on the faithfulness of God. Unfaithfulness is one of the most outstanding sins of these evil days. In the business world, a man's word is, with exceedingly rare exceptions, no longer his bond. In the social world, marital infidelity abounds on every hand, the sacred bonds of wedlock being broken with as little regard as the discarding of an old garment. In the ecclesiastical realm, in the realm of the church, thousands who have solemnly covenanted to preach the truth make no scruple to attack and deny it nor can reader or writer claim complete immunity from this fearful sin in how many ways have we been unfaithful to christ and in how many excuse me and to the light and privileges which god has entrusted to us how refreshing then how unspeakably blessed To lift our eyes above this scene of ruin and behold one who is faithful, faithful in all things, faithful at all times. Convicting when we consider how different from us God is, in particular in his faithfulness, when we are by nature unfaithful. Now, Pink goes into, uh, he brings up a number of scripture passages that I'd like to look up. Um, we're doing good on time. Um, and I think as we did last week, if, if some would like to volunteer to look up a few of these to help us along. Um, could someone look up Deuteronomy 7, verses 8 through 10? Elizabeth, thank you. Another one, 2 Timothy 2, verses 11 through 13. Dan, great. And then Psalm, let's see, Psalm 36, verses 5 and 6. Thank you, Michael. All right. And I'm gonna do Isaiah eleven five, and then could someone look up Lamentations three? Olivia, thank you. Lamentations three verses twenty two and twenty three. Elizabeth, if you could start with Deuteronomy 7, verses 8 through 10. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. And repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slapped with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. A great statement of, of the faithfulness of God to his word. His word uh, to his people. His covenant. His covenant faithfulness. Um, yeah, a great a great statement there. Uh, Dan, Second Timothy. 2 Timothy 2, 11 to 13. 11 through 13, yep. Yeah. This is a faithful saying, for if we die with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. So that verse connects God's faithfulness with his uh, even his relationship to himself, <laughs> he in his covenant, uh, he is declaring and exercising his nature in his faithfulness to us. He is faithful to himself. So even though his covenant people may be unfaithful, yet he is faithful, and that is that is the the heart, the glory of the covenant with the faithful God. Uh, notwithstanding our failures, he is faithful. Okay, Michael, uh, Psalm 36, 5 and 6. Your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like a great deep. O Lord, you preserve man and beast. So that verse declares to us the never-ending character of God's Attributes his faithfulness to the heavens, or does it say to the skies? I can't remember. The to the skies, um, same idea though. That doesn't mean literally. In our scientific mind, we might say, "Oh, well, the skies are so much, you know, so many feet or miles above us, and so it stops there." Of course, that's not what it's saying. It is never-ending. We cannot reach uh, its heights. We cannot measure its depths. God's faithfulness is uh, is infinite. Okay, uh, Isaiah eleven, verse five, says, "The uh, righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist." The faithfulness of God never leaves him; he has it with him always. It is always a part of how he relates to his creation, uh, to his people, and even to himself. He is always faithful because it is a part of himself. All right, and the last one, Lamentations 3, verses 22 and 23. Olivia? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. How we all can and should have that on our lips at all times. Additionally, we can consider God's faithfulness in the many prophecies of Scripture which are fulfilled. Many uh, fulfillments of prophecy are recorded in Scripture. How is that? Because God is faithful to His Word. He declares to His people what He will bring to pass. He brings it to pass and He records it for His people and preserves, uh, preserves that record forever. Uh, we can always look at what God has done for His people. Uh, there are many Psalms in which Uh, God's people are declaring to one another the faithfulness of God to His Word. Look at what God has done for us, for our fathers. Look at what God has done in generations past. From that we know that no matter what we experience today, He will do the same for us because we are bound up in this same covenant. We are relating to this same God. We have these same promises that we can claim. And so we can depend on that same faithfulness that preserved our... uh, preceding generations of the church. Okay, and to kind of summarize, I guess how Pink discusses uh, how scripture declares God's faithfulness. He says this, what a word is that in Psalm 36:5. Thy, thy mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens and thy faithfulness under the clouds. Far above all finite comprehension is the unchanging faithfulness of God. Everything about God is great, vast, incomparable. He never forgets, never fails, never falters, never forfeits his word. To every declaration of promise or prophecy, the Lord has exactly adhered. Every engagement of covenant or threatening, he will make good. For God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? That's Numbers twenty-three nineteen. Therefore does the believer exclaim, his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Now, Pink, uh, again, kind of goes through what are some of the ways in which God is faithful to his people. How do we see this expressed? Pink discusses the, how God is faithful in preserving his people. He says, God is faithful by whom, or he quotes here, first, first Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful by whom ye are called unto the fellowship, of his son. We know that God preserves and sustains his people. Every sheep which was given to the son, he preserved and kept until the end. Pink says, since God has promised to his son a certain people for his inheritance to deliver them from sin and condemnation and to make them participants of eternal life and glory, it is certain that he will not allow any of them To perish. God is also faithful in disciplining. His people. So because we know the character of God is faithful to his promises. We know that when we experience. um, The chastisement or the chastening of God. We know that that is not judgment. It is a, a partial judgment of sin, but it is not a final judgment. We know that he is calling us to himself. We know that His uh, the afflictions we experience are God being faithful to us. It is uh, binding us closer to him. Pink says this, when God smites us with a rod of chastisement, it is faithfulness which wields it. I think that's a great way to put that. We are we are not experiencing wrath. Uh, we are not experiencing distance from God. We are not experiencing enmity with God, for we are no longer at enmity if we are in Christ, if we have been reconciled. So it is the faithfulness of God which wields the rod of chastisement. He goes on, To acknowledge this means that we humble ourselves before Him, own that we fully deserve His correction, And instead of murmuring, thank him for it. But how difficult that is for us, (laughs) who are short-sighted, who are finite, uh, to look beyond our own experiences and, and, dare I say, feelings, to rely upon the faithful God, uh, and even to glory in him and thank him for all of his dealings with us. For if he is faithful in one thing, he is faithful in all things. And Pink goes on to describe that if God is faithful, uh, that God is faithful in glorifying his people. God deals with us not on the ground of our merits, for we have none, but for his own great name's sake. God is constant to himself and to his per- own purpose of grace. Whom he called them, he also glorified. Romans 8.30. And also in that passage, as we've seen in Pastor Sharp's preaching, that God's purpose involves making Christ the firstborn among many brethren. And so if that's true, then, then his faithfulness to preserve us and carry us to glory is bound up in his purpose for his son, for himself. And so he certainly will keep his word to himself. And if we are in him, he is faithful to us. And that brings up something I just quickly want to mention, and there's not enough time to really go into it. um, Something that Pink doesn't really get into, but it's the idea of, of to whom is God faithful? Is he faithful to us because of us? Is he faithful to us because of something good in us, something desirable in us, that if we are faithful to him, he is faithful to us? No, God is faithful to himself. um, Our standards, the Westminster Standards, describe, uh, says, what is the covenant? Uh, I'm going to butcher this because I'm trying to do it from memory. With whom was the covenant of grace made? Who did God covenant with? in the covenant of grace. It is with Christ and with all who are in Him. And so our place, our claim on the faithfulness of God, at least the blessing side of it, because there is another side of it, our claim and possession to the faithfulness of God as a blessing is derivative. We we derive that place from Christ. It is all who are in Him that have a claim on God's faithfulness and that experience the blessings and the the inexplicable joys of his faithfulness because God is faithful to Christ to his son and in him to us he is not faithful first to us he's faithful first to Christ and secondarily and by by um, by a gift graciously to us i think that that, that truth has much to dwell on, much to meditate on. And I think is a good reminder. Uh, I, I've, I, one of my, um, the pastor of the OPC church in Tulsa that I went to, often talked about, uh, you cannot separate Christ from his benefits. We so often dwell on the benefits of Christ, and we neglect Christ himself. And we cannot do that. Uh, all of our benefits are experienced in Christ and flow from him. And even can be said, they flow to him. Okay, enough on that. At least for now. There'll be time in uh, eternity for more of that. Um, Okay, application, uh, just for a few minutes. Uh, I just want to run through a few things. Uh, These are things, uh, again, from both chapters, immutability and faithfulness, but they're so interrelated they flow, they flow out of each other. I just wanted to combine them together. Um, so one of the things that Pink highlights is the idea of the creator-creature distinction. This idea, in all of our dealings, we are mutable. We change all the time. Um, by nature, we are mut- mutable. Once we did not exist, God created us. And so even just from that, notwithstanding even the fall, Not even our fallen nature. We are, because we are creatures, mutable. Um, That's important to remember. We will one day be no longer subject to change, but that's in glory. Um, And even then, I don't know that the word immutable can apply to us, but for now, it's enough to remember uh, that God is unlike us completely. There is a never... um, there will always be a distinction, a gulf between creator and creature. We also, in uh, considering God's immutability and his faithfulness, that uh, a meditation on that can deliver us from worry and can deliver us from murmuring. We, we've just kind of talked about it and touched on it. But if we are depending upon the God who never changes and we are depending on his promises, which are sure the promises of one who cannot lie. As Hebrews describes, um, how does it say it? Um, Well, I can't remember exactly, but basically the God who cannot lie has made an oath. And so we can be doubly sure that what he has promised will come to pass. So if God is for you, who can be against you? As it says in Romans. So no matter the afflictions we face, our Father who is in heaven knows what is best for us. He would preserve you and sustain you and you can trust in Him. Uh, Next, this ought to encourage us to prayer. Um, Pink includes a quote from Stephen Sharnock who says this, What comfort would it be to pray to a God that, like a chameleon, changed color every moment? Who would put up a petition to an earthly prince that was so mutable as to grant a petition one day and deny it another? Not only can we pray to the God who never changes, but why would we pray to anyone else? This is what's so um, sad, honestly, uh, about the traditions like Roman Catholicism, who pray to creatures, they pray to to men and women, not only men and women, but dead men and women, uh, who, may, if they are elect, they are alive in Christ. But why would we not pray directly? to a perfect high priest who never changes, who has the power and authority not only to hear, but to grant our petitions. And when he grants our petitions, they are unshakable. That ought to encourage us to pray more. It ought to encourage us to pray the promises of Scripture, which cannot be shaken. Okay, got to move on. Um, Let's see. Now, um, Pink raises that one of the applications here that we can consider is if God is immutable, unchanging, if he is faithful to his word, then all of his threats, he is also faithful to those. If he is the most holy God who hates sin, he will surely punish sin. Um, and we, he, he raises uh, in scripture when... Israel is at the edge of the Red Sea and the Egyptians have have pursued them and are bearing down on them. God moves the cloud, uh, the pillar of darkness, or excuse me, not the pillar of darkness, the pillar of cloud from the front of God's people leading them to behind them, to guard them. And it describes the darkness that was facing Egypt, uh, the Egyptians, and the light that was shining on God's people. Uh, It's a description of God's the same character, the same faithfulness relating to people differently. If we are in Christ, it is light, it is it is glory, it is blessing. But if we are not in Christ, it is it is a curse, it is a threat. And he is faithful to that threat. And that is something that ought to convict. Even for us who are in Christ, it ought to convict us of sin, knowing what God has saved us from. But the other side is the comfort To the righteous, not only terror for the wicked, but comfort to the righteous. Okay, and I just want to conclude here with a couple of paragraphs from Pink uh, that really, I think, are are what I want us to walk away considering in our hearts and in our minds. Um, These are one paragraph from the immutability and one from the faithfulness of God, one from each chapter. Herein is solid comfort. Human nature cannot be relied upon, but God can. (sighs) However unstable I may be, however fickle my friends may prove, God changes not. If he varied as we do, if he willed one thing today and another tomorrow, if he were controlled by caprice, who could confide in him? But all praise to his glorious name, he is ever the same. His purpose is fixed, his will is stable, his word is sure. Here then is a rock on which we may fix our feet. While the mighty torrent is sweeping away everything around us, the permanence of God's character guarantees the faith, the fulfillment of his promises. And quoting Isaiah 54.10, For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from thee. Neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed saith the Lord that hath mercy on thee. Again, that's Isaiah fifty four ten, And I'm not going to read the second quote because we're out of time. So I need to cut it off. Um, but praise God for his immutability and for his faithfulness. And may that encourage you. I hope that you meditate on it um, even as we go into uh, the week. Um, okay, I'm just going to pray briefly and we'll go. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your character. We thank you for your, your love for us which never changes because you never change. We thank you for your faithfulness to your promises. And Lord, may we be faithful to you by your grace as you sanctify us. Lord, make us faithful like you are, though we can never reach that height. Lord, let us strive for it, even as you transform us into the image of your son. Lord, as we enter now into worship, we pray that your spirit would be at work and that you would do mighty things, speaking to us, uh, communing with us, even as we meet with you. We thank you and praise you. and we pray in Christ's name. Amen.